Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Clear Thinking, brought to you by Better Broadhead. Our town, their future. Please welcome your host, Aaron Menzel. My guest today struggled through substance use disorder, has been in recovery for many years, and is now a recovery coach and peer specialist with Greene County Human Services. I'm so pleased to welcome Carlos Rivera to the show. Once you finally got through a period of time, you said that four years, where you no longer felt anxious and depressed, then what was kind of your road to becoming the recovery coach that you are today? Or was that all a very long road? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't a long road. What it was is that, I mean, because of the way I live my life, you know, I have a strong faith in God. God kept putting it into me to go to count, to go become a counselor, but I kept putting it off. So then I met Nancy Richardson. I started working where she was coming to our church years prior, and she seen me in my addiction, and then she seen me after oh, the addiction. Okay. So she came out to Green County to work, and I was working with her, you know, one on one and on a ministry level, and um, she said, "What would you do if there's a job opening?" And, that may come up in Green County. I said, look, if, if, if the Lord opens the door, then I, if that's what he wants me to do, I'll do it. I don't have no problem. So it took about two years, but in that two years, it's like I went through a preparation phase in my life, personally. There were some other things that, you know, he was dealing with me with. But I ended up getting a job that way through her. She gave the word, I gave my resume, I gave my life experience, you know. And then they paid for my recovery coaching. I went and did the training on that. And then um, then now I just finished my peer support specialist uh, certification. I got that. Very good. I'm working yeah. towards my degree in AODA now. Um, so, but all this whole time I was putting it off. And like he literally said, no, you're going to. <laughs> That's how it felt. Like, no, this is what I've been telling you to do. So. I've been I was putting it off for years, um, but at the end, it's like I see now why, you know. I see now why I'm where I'm at today, and it's because of the experience. And not only that, in 2010, I was already ministering. I was in ministry, so I already had skills with dealing with people from all types of walks right, of life, right. including addiction. So I was already prepared for the job, but I just didn't have the paperwork and the training. Yeah. But um, but I think at the end result, I think that there's been a spike up in success with some of the guys I've been working with. And I really think that the critical part to recovery, the information is part of it, but I think it's the relationship piece. I think so too. I think I mentioned this when we talked on the phone. I had um, shadowed with probation in Iowa County and they have a drug court there and met with like the judge and the counselor and all those people before drug court actually happened mm -hmm. and the judge had said to me when explaining kind of how drug court worked um, that quite a few of the people have never heard someone say I'm proud of you or you're doing a good job and that relationship that all those pieces all those people had in drug court had with the, the clients was really impactful and really helped them become successful and graduate from drug court. So, yeah, I, I completely get that. I see that that 
is an important piece. It is. It's it's so important. And, and it's even important to visit them while they're in treatment. Because mm -hmm. they go to the redundancy of N-A, 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 get up, go to class, N-A. They do other little things, but they're having the N-A and... And, and the models of addiction, uh, recovery, just on a day-to-day -day basis. So At NA, you're talking about nar Narcotics uh, Anonymous, Anonymous, right? NA, yep. or yep. What, wherever they, whatever model that they're using for that treatment facility. Okay. What happens is they, they, they go through it every day, and it's information pounded into them. But redundancy sometimes creates agitation. Hmm. And people that are in addiction, they're still in the process of getting clean. Right. So when it becomes so redundant, they stop receiving the information, like whatever. Mm -hmm. So what I've, what I've learned in my personal growth in this field is that I go visit them either in the middle or towards the end to snap them out of the norm. Let's deal with some other stuff. Let's talk for a while. How you been? Right. When you make that extra effort to go visit somebody miles away, it demonstrates love. It demonstrates, I want to see you recover. Right. It demonstrates, I know you're here and the redundancy and all this information. I know it's hard and you miss your family or if, or you, you want to just get back into your normal living. But when you give, when a person shows up and gives them that reassurance that say, hey, I'm proud of you. Like mm -hmm. you said, yeah. you're making it. Is there anything that's affecting you at this moment? Let's talk for a little bit. And immediately, you'll be amazed how they just, they don't even talk about the group. They say, look, I'm dealing with this right now inside, and it's hard for me to do it because it's over and over and over and over. I thank God you came and visited me right now because I needed that break. So I learned that. And um, when I explained my method to this doctor named Dr. Hayes, he said, you don't even realize what you did for them. And I was like, what? Yeah. He goes, you, you just snap. They need that. They need to be snapped away from the norm for a while. Because oh. it helps them reset. Right. Because if they can see a person put much effort into you and cares about you completing your program, and, you know, there'd be some that just don't care. Let's keep it real. Mm -hmm. uh, not recovery course, but I mean the individual. Right, right. Um, when they see that, that you go the extra step, and you're able to talk to them on a realistic level, real life experience, it does something to them. Probably, I would think, also makes them feel valued as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, that they're not just an addict or they're not just, you know, another person going through a program. They matter in some shape or form, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Then they're, they're not just abandoned. And yeah. They're, not, they're, they're looked upon as a person yeah. rather than an addict you know um, and again you can you can only go so far mm -hmm. with there's a balance to it you can't right. always do that yeah. because then they become spoiled brats right well <laughs> and then it's not um, uh, you, a professional relationship in some way like yeah you're your support system for them but you don't want to overstep probably that bound either boundary yeah yeah because some of them get needy mm -hmm. but you, you you have i think in this field where you gotta have the wisdom to see when it's time to start stepping back a little mm -hmm. bit it's good to, you always want to set boundaries right always you know but my approach is a little bit orthodox 
I do set the boundaries, but I also treat them like a person that can be somebody or is some, not can be, but that is somebody very important. So when you put that relationship piece in there mm-hmm. and, and, and when they feel that genuineness and that love, when you do go into a place where you have to be a truth teller and it might hurt them or you have to be, like I always say, keeping 100 with them, yeah. they'll receive it more often. Probably because there's a trust that you've built there from the beginning. Right. There's yeah. a report. Yeah. There's a report that you do build. But a lot of times what I've noticed with some individuals, they just won't open up. And it takes it takes not only just the training that we get, but it just takes it I think that in this field of work, in any type of field of work like this, dealing with humans. Mm-hmm. Love is the answer. We can give them all the information that we want to. But the main thing that most people in this world, and that's people struggling with addiction and without, that have inner issues is seeing genuine love. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think there has to be... There has to be a genuine emotion behind it. Otherwise, it feels disingenuous or, you know, that it's just a program rather than trying to change someone's life. Well, or it's like, for example, somebody that works in a factory, they go and they make a part. Okay, I'm making this part. I go home. Mm-hmm. Or say, for example, I go to work and I'm like, okay, I'm coming to work and I got to deal with you because I got to get paid to feed my family. Yeah. If you have that attitude. hmm you're in the wrong field. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it really crosses all bounds. Like, teachers and police officers and everyone has to come from that genuine place. Yeah, and it gets tough because you're going to get people that don't want to comply. Mm-hmm. You're going you're gonna to want to do more full work than they're doing for them. But what I've learned is, is in those times... Sometimes you, you got to know when to slow down. You got to know when to stop. You got to know when to, you got to know when to be forward. You got to know mm-hmm. when to have compassion. You got to know when to switch gears with them so that they understand, hey, this is part of your recovery plan. This is not mine. This is what you want to do because it's based on them. Right. Whatever they're comfortable with, we follow, right? Yeah. But at the same time, we got to remind them, hey, this is what you wanted for your recovery. This is what we're doing for your recovery. You know? I would think without your lived experience, it would be hard to understand the nuances of that. You know, when Mm -hmm. someone needs the straightforwardness or someone needs the reminder. Like, that takes understanding of not just human behavior but of what a person is going through yeah it's like having a high scent i call it discernment but they the normal word is empathy mm-hmm. having a fine-tuned empathy for yeah. people um goes a long way even when you're having a bad day that's hard when you're having a bad day <laughs> I think to be more empathetic or to, you know, because you're just wrapped up in your own problems. 
But, but you know, yeah. It, but you know what I noticed about that is a lot of times, and I promise you, when when we're recovery coaching and doing peer support, a lot of times I ain't gonna, I don't tell them what I'm going through currently. Mm -hmm. I'll talk more about my past or you know my recovery or my drug right. addiction, but I won't open up about anything. And would you believe? That in those times when I'm maybe going through something in my personal life, they will start talking and you will get insight from them about what you're currently going through. Even though you haven't told them what and you're going through. even though you haven't yeah. told them what you're going through. Yeah. And I say, sometimes I say, wow, you, you know, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. Because now what they don't realize is that when they give me feedback, they're giving me strength. In my times of weakness. That's that's really great to have that. Like I think sometimes people forget that even though someone might have a, an addiction issue or a substance use issue, they still have such great experiences and you know, like mm, yeah. A, you know, someone who is worthwhile to yeah. put so much effort into because such great potential, you know. They can be wise and all yeah. of those things. You'll be amazed on who you come across mm -hmm. that just struggling with the addiction. There's doctors mm -hmm. that have got caught into addiction, right. writing themselves prescription, brilliant minds, brilliant yes. people. And and you know what I found the most though, and that that I found very intriguing lately as of late, is that the ones that have suffered the most in life and in their addiction are the ones that will literally give you something to think about when you go home. Because there's something about suffering in life that creates a compassion or creates a, how can you say, a wisdom and a knowledge mm -hmm. that comes with suffering. And you look at that individual and you're like, wow, I thought I went through some stuff, tough stuff. This right here. Yeah, wow. the strength to survive those yeah. things. Yeah. It's amazing. That yeah. is amazing. And I think we, we talked about this before we started recording um, when you said there's doctors that fight addiction. And I, I don't remember. How did you say it that social media and schools have kind of ingrained in us that people who are fighting addiction <laughs> are a certain way, right? Right. Like, I think I said uh, there. Yeah. I I used to think people were like in the underbelly of society if they were right, like they know? were the filth of society, yes. right? Yeah. But that's the way society had programmed right. our 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 minds to believe that. Right. It, it, and yeah. in reality, like you said, it's doctors, it's lawyers, it's well-educated people. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't have no boundaries. Right. Yeah. Addiction has no boundaries. It has no culture. Right. You know, you can find somebody that's well off, billions of dollars, mm -hmm. and they're so caught up in addiction and misery. Money doesn't fix your problems. Right. Now, money doesn't fix the internal part of a person. Mm -hmm. um, having good things, you know. These are things that the, a person that is in poverty, right, mm -hmm. would desire. Oh man, if I had all this money, but here's there's some that have it, and they're still not content. They're still not happy. They're still using drugs. They're still addicted to some type of substance, 
Right. And then some of them even get to the point where they be, they commit suicide, mm-hmm. and yet they have all these things that a normal person in the world would want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great example of that. Right. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, there's still so much stigma attached to um, substance use. Mm-hmm. There is. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I went to the, the the recovery coach training, we did an exercise on stigma. And that exercise broke me down. Oh, wow. It was really? the exercise because they prepare you for it. And here I already have years clean under my belt, mm-hmm. but it just took me back to remember all those names that we ended up putting every table the exercise was cool. Every table was a certain group of people, and we had to stigmatize each other. Oh. And then, and then we had to just put it all on paper and then put it up. And then everybody puts their head down, and then everybody gets up and looks at the wall. That would be rough. So what were, the, what were some of the things on the Junkie, mm. uh, thief, um... Um, violent, anger, dangerous, um, just no good, filthy, dirty, vagabond. Mm. There was so much words there, um, you know, almost as if they were the scum of the earth. Were those things that you heard when you were in the throes of your addiction? Yeah. Yeah. It took a long time for people to trust me. Yeah. It hurts. Trust, not being trusted is damaging. Yeah. It hurts really bad. Yeah, it does. It took years. Years. It just didn't happen overnight. People didn't want me in their homes because I'll steal some. People didn't want me in, in, the, in, they wouldn't welcome me to their house because they're afraid I'll come over there high. Um, people would, just leave me out in the cold. Um, my mom always gave me a spot to come in when I needed to, but just, he's, they would tell my wife, my beautiful wife, they would tell her, he's no good, just leave him. Mm. He ain't gonna mount to a hill of beans. He's, he's garbage, he's trash, look at what he's doing. He's doing this, he's doing that. They never really asked me what's happening or what's going on. Or why. Or why. Yeah. And, um, even early in, in my recovery, they still were waiting for me to fall. And would you believe the same ones that stigmatized me, put me down, told my wife to leave, their, their husbands left them, that everything is reversed, and now they're calling me for wisdom, for counseling, for guidance, for prayer. That's interesting. The, the, that's a beautiful thing, though. Mm-hmm. And I'm not judging them. Well, that you can help them. You're in now, a place that you can help them. I'm in a place to mm-hmm. love them instead of doing what they did to me. I love them. I love them anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, that is a really great thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 you know, but in life, people will hurt you. Mm-hmm. In life, people will have their opinions about you, whether they love you or they don't. Um, you're always going to deal with that human condition. 
with people, mm -hmm. um, especially people that are struggling with addiction. Um, I had to make a decision. I can either get angry or bitter, or I can do what he tells me to do and love them anyways, because that's all it is. It's avoidance of love. It's a, there's hurt in there. There's all kind of things that go on within us by the experiences of life that we go through. And if if I do the same thing, it's just creating ashes. It's fire, mm -hmm. fire is ashes. And it takes us a tremendous amount of strength to overlook the bad that you see. I'm, I'm a firm believer that inside every human being, there's good in them. They just got to have somebody to help them draw it out of them. Right. And that's, see it. And yeah. see it. You know. So, yeah. And they probably don't realize that there is good. Because they've never been told that they're good. Or shown that they're good. Or yet alone even trusted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Trust. Trust is big. Trust is a big thing. Mm -hmm. I've seen these. I've seen grown men cry. Man, I'm telling them the truth. They don't trust me. And I try to remind them, well, you know, people usually judge you and they perceive you off your last experience with them. So you can't expect them to trust you at this moment. And it's the cold reality of yeah, life. Yeah, it is, yeah. But if you endure for a while and you go through it and you focus on you, they're going to have no choice but to trust you because they're starting to see the fruit of who you are. Yeah. And it took me a long time. I bet. A long time. And it hurt. Mm -hmm. It hurts. Those stigmatizing words that you were talking about, um, do you think that society is getting away from using those words more so? Or do you think that it's not really changing um, at this point? I think there's some awareness starting to happen. Yeah. But I don't. I think we're far from it, because people still, people still use the terminology: crackhead, dope right. fiend, um, hype, um, beggar, um, um, good for nothing. Right? Mm -hmm. um, they don't. And then the language, right? The language out there in, in the streets. You know, you grow up. Hey, that's Tony the crackhead. Everybody start laughing. He's buying crack. That's how they see it. But they don't realize the damage that it does when they see that person walking by. They know they're buying crack. They know that they're struggling. You're just, you're just re, uh, uh, re-strengthening right. <laughs> my addiction by saying I'm a crackhead. Or, right, because then you're defined by it. Right. Yeah. You're defined. You're, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's the word I was looking for. You start defining yourself, but I'm nothing but a dolphin. I'm never going to change. What's the point of me changing if everybody just sees the bad? Yeah. Now take it. I'm going to keep it real. Mm -hmm. it, it's a process for you to start seeing the byproduct of somebody surviving and getting into real, real deep into recovery. It takes a long time for mm -hmm. that transition. You know, old habits die hard. You know, it's the behavior's got to stop. The way of thinking got to slow down, you know. Um, yeah. renewing your mind, you know. Um, I think that's critical to help them understand that there's power in renewing the way you think, you know. And that can be kind of physical as well, right? The drug kind of chemically changes the pathways in the brain. 
Oh, definitely. So it's not just like the person needs to be stronger or whatever. It takes time for your brain to, to recover from it as well. Yes. Yes. I was just talking about that the other day. I was explaining to the you know some of the guys. I was telling them, look, when you guys begin to use this amount, the pathways of your dopamine reception, they broaden. So now it develops a, a consistent path that the brain takes every time you use. Mm-hmm. So now when you stop using, the brain got to find a place to rewire itself so that then pathways can get back to normal. Right. Now some people will use to the extent where damage is created in the brain and now they'll need a medication for the rest of their life to keep them in a balance. Oh, wow. Yeah. Depending on the damage that's done to the brain. I don't think that's something that a lot of people realize. That it's like a permanent, it can be a permanent change in the way that the brain works. It can be. Yeah. Um, it can be. And, but there's medications that can help you with a chemical imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, some people can, the brain can heal itself. The brain is so amazing. Yeah. There's uh, neuroplasticity, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you get damaged in one area, that same function that was happening in that area will mess around. The brain will rewire itself, but you can regain that ability sometimes. Right. Where the brain has the power to heal itself. But it depends how long you're staying clean. The brain doesn't start healing until probably, some for some people, two to three years in recovery, it starts healing. That's a significant amount of time. Yes. That's why. It's pretty amazing. That's why sometimes I mean, tease help. It was good for that to help them stay away from it so they get their brain time to heal. And the medications that they go on for MAT Mm -hmm. don't impact those pathways that. I haven't gotten into a deep discussion with that yet. I do know what it treats. I'm, again, I just I'm new still to this. Yeah. Um, but I do know that, like Vivitrol, mm-hmm. cra- curves the cravings for alcohol. They're learning that it, it curves the craving for meth and it curves the craving for heroin. Um, Suboxone is another story with itself. We talked about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a that's a monster right there. I mean, it is a Band-Aid. It can help you. Mm-hmm. But I think that if there's a proper tapering of down, you'll be more successful with that. Um, I think that also with the, um, the methadone, you have some success rates with that. But more than likely, sometimes it jumps into another addiction. So. It can jump into a methadone addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll find people coming around the methadone clinic to buy the bottles from people that get mm-hmm. to take you home, and then the people get the money that get the bottles, and then they'll go use, they'll go buy right, heroin. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. So it becomes a vicious cycle. That is a vicious cycle. You know. Yeah. Addiction is a, I mean, addiction can go so far as to, when we talk about opiates, right? Mm-hmm. But there's eating addictions. Yeah. There's sex addiction there's shopping addiction shopping addiction mm-hmm. there is all kind of addictions out there that condition our minds and our way of thinking to think a certain way do you think it's kind of part of 
the human condition. Like it's something that happens so often. We just always think of addiction as a drug addiction rather than like the examples that you gave. Yeah, I mean, because it's true. I think we, we can all get addicted to something. I can get addicted to caffeine. Yeah. I gotta have my I coffee. I am addicted to caffeine. I am too. I, <laughs> yeah. love, I gotta have my coffee. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, can it cause damage? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can be dehydrated. I can I can hurt my body. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, uh, gambling. Yeah. Gambling can hurt you. Yeah. You know, Not physically most hurt. of the time, but... It, it financially will, it's a slow decay because mm-hmm. if you're struggling financially now you're going to be struggling emotionally right you're struggling emotionally you're going to start straining relationships mm-hmm. you start straining relationships now you're <laughs> right you're going to go to drinking right right yeah so, and then the most and most of the, for the most part at most casinos they give you free liquor if you're they gambling mm-hmm. so yeah it's, uh, <laughs> yeah so which they're playing off of that right, <laughs> right yeah, addiction they're, yeah. yeah they're playing off that that addiction. Yeah. Same thing with, I mean, we're adults. Same thing with sexual activity. Some people get into pornography addiction, mm-hmm. and their bodies all drained and they're tired and they can't live without it. It's a, it's an impulsive thing that they just cannot get over. Right. And it's a monster to them, and they hate it, but they love it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Addiction. Yeah. <laughs> and why? Because. These things trigger the pleasure part of the brain, mm-hmm. where the dopamine comes out. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's a there's even a <laughs> dopamine release every time you get a like on Facebook or mm-hmm. Instagram or whatever it is. It's a physical reaction to something that you're seeing. So people can be addicted to social media or getting likes on something. So yeah. 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 And it becomes it becomes I mean some people use it and they stay stuck and it becomes an addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Let's think about food. Yeah. If I can't control my appetite or when I get angry or I get hurt, or I get mad, what's the first thing I'm gonna reach for food? Mm-hmm. So I think that we're prone as human beings to to like things. Yeah. And right? we wanna feel good. And we wanna feel mm-hmm. good. But I think that, I think that we were more designed. If we look at it from that perspective, is um, we don't do things in in small increments. It's What's hard it to have moderation. Moderation. Yeah. That's the way I was looking for. So yeah. it's hard to control moderation. Mm-hmm. You would have to have a great self discipline to control moderation. And be taught mm-hmm. that moderation is a thing. Right. You know, from a young age. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it could be a learned behavior. Yeah. Oh, if definitely. it was part of parent, you know, yeah, overwhelmingly I mean, part of parenting. Yeah. Yeah. If you teach the child the way they should go, they're not going to depart from it. But I think if you focus on certain foundations mm-hmm. and help them develop in the right time. But, you know, in today's society, but you got right? babies having babies. Well, and <laughs> and also, you know, moderation isn't a part of our society for the most part. No. You know, we it's about having the most things and, you know, yeah. the most money and the most toys and all of that stuff. So how can you teach moderation when That's it's hard to be an adult and practice it, I would think, you know, for most people. Is. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think that um, a lot of these things, uh, we think about it later, okay, let's think about us being in a primitive age. Yeah. 
there's no TV, there's no internet. You have your family, your group, your people, mm-hmm. and you're surviving. You're coming up with ways to survive weather. Uh, you know that plants can heal the body. Right. So at a primitive state, there was more purity. That's true. Yeah. There was more pur- There was more purity, and the motives were more of love and survival and mm-hmm. trying to move forward. Right. And live. Yeah, yeah. When we were in tribal societies. People knew their place, and there, there was, was a respect. limited amount of people. So you were like the best at doing something in your, your in your tribe, and, and was, you fit in, you know. And yeah, and, and the ways of living, like you know, the, you respect the elders, yeah. you honor the women, you you teach the men how to be men, right? And there was a sense of there was a sense of unity, but purity and connection and connection. Yeah. Yeah. So now you, we have manifested, we have grown and evolved, and so now, and the mold is prepared, right? Mm-hmm. So now, we fast forward to today, a lot of motives are impure. A lot of stuff is not in a place of purity, but in a place of selfishness and self-centeredness and own desires. Right? Because right? there is no connection now. Exactly. Yeah. There's no connection. Yeah. And so... I think that we lose focus and then what happens when people deal with stressful things instead of having that connection to mm-hmm. help um, cultivate healing right. and understanding amongst each other they just run and they go I'll just pop a pill or right. drink some alcohol just to numb this this tool get over it we'll just mm-hmm. brush it under the rug yeah and then 10 months down the line that same issue pops up because there was never no true resolve. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it in a societal way. Yeah. You know, that our lack of, like, genuine connectedness to each other or knowing who you can talk to to get that support. Mm -hmm. You're going to chase that euphoria, that support, in a different way. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're getting like social media, you're gonna want the world to know. Some people want the world to know. They do. All right, but then some people just face away from society and mm-hmm. they go into a box and they put themselves in a prison because they don't want nobody to know. Right. So it goes two ways. I've yeah. seen it happen two ways. I often tell the people that I work with, I said, there could be a man in prison and he could be free. They look at me like, what? That's true. He could be free in mm-hmm. his mind and his spirit and his soul. And there could be people out here in liberty having freedom and be imprisoned in their own mind. Mm-hmm. Or imprisoned in their own addiction or desire, right. you know. Um, but I really feel that it, that recovery coaching and peer supporting, I think recovery coaching has been, if not one of the, one of the greatest methods of helping people recover from addiction and the peer support i know counselors do their job mm-hmm. they do their job on a therapy level you know they hats off to them they go to school they get the education but there's just something about the real life experience that resonates through the other person receiving the information from somebody that had been through the trenches they've been through there's just something there's just such a connection there i agree such a connection there. Yeah, because 
It's hard to bare your soul to someone that doesn't understand what you've actually been through. They may have read about it, but that doesn't mean that they've lived it. Right. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, and you know, I've met some good counselors, some great counselors. I mean, they're great at what mm -hmm. they do. I've sat there and I marvel on how they bring things out and they help them get yeah. to the core of things. But then when I start recovering, coaching, like let's say for an example, there's a therapist and I'm the, re I'm, the other per I'm the person that they're dealing with, their recovery coach. When they come to me, it's a, they, they, they say this to me all the time, it's just a different atmosphere. It's just completely different. I feel like I'm being psychoanalyzed versus mm -hmm. you're talking to me from such a pure, genuine place where I can cry and I can, and, and I, and, and I could, I could almost feel so secure when I leave here, you know? Yeah. I wonder if part of that is the stigma in talking to a therapist altogether, you know? Uh -huh. um, that people believe, like, no matter what they're saying, they're being psychoanalyzed or that, you know? So I wonder if that's part of it as well. Right. It, it is. Yeah. And, yeah, and plus, too, I think from my understanding, that counselors cannot self-disclose. They can't. I don't think they can. And very minimal. Yeah. Yeah. They and don't want to create some sort of transfer. relationship, right? Or, or there can be a transference of things, right? right? Yeah. If they're not prepared for it, right? Um, and, and, and it's just things like that. Yeah. That I think that that's where we come in and we build that bridge. Bam. Right. We're the bridge between the counselor and the person, so that that way, when they go into the counselor, we become that bridge for them to make it more effective. We're like the safety net. Right, and maybe they're more receptive to what the therapist has to say because you've helped them along the way, right? Because we walk side by side. Right. So I've seen it work. If you have people that are on the same page, and people that have the client's best interest and do the work with love regardless of how you're feeling or what you're going through that you're able to put your own stuff away and focus on the embedderment of somebody else it is the most beautiful thing yeah you know i think you're right yeah I think anytime someone is passionate and doing it for the right reasons, it shows. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, motivations. Right? Mm-hmm. You know what? What? What picks me up every day? What? What? Outside of my norm, as a person, right? Because I got my family, I got my wife, mm -hmm. my children. What motivates me every day? What? What's my motivation? Yeah, I, I, I play another role at home as dad, and I play another role at church as minister, and I play another role at work as recovery coach, and then sometimes peer support specialist, and sometimes a support for my coworker, mm -hmm. right? And it's all, and I believe, I don't know, just for me, I think is love is the motivation. Love has to be the motivation for how yeah. we live and what we do. I was thinking from a personal standpoint of like how am I how am I impacting my little part of the world? Like is it in a positive way? Like like you would say with love? 
Or is it with hate? And how am I making my corner of the world better? You know? So, I mean, that can be a motivation as well. Like, right. bettering society in some little tiny way. Right. Yeah. And anytime you're doing anything that's good, it's going to mm-hmm. come with adversity yeah. of some sort. Because it, it, there's, I have not seen somebody do something good without any type of Yeah, there always seems resistance. to be some sort of, like, you put some good into the world and then you get some sort of, like, twofold bad back at you, it feels like, sometimes. It does. Yeah. It, it yeah. does. But what I found, and we were, I was talking about this again. This, this is interesting. <laughs> I was talking about this the other day, and I was sharing with somebody that, I don't take anybody for granted that I cross paths with, whether it's a negative experience and a bad experience or mm-hmm. a good one. And what I've learned is that most bad experiences are placed in front of me so I can learn about myself. Mm. Because if I'm not challenged in some type of way, I won't know what's in me. Yeah, that's true. If I'm not pressed, if mm-hmm. I'm not pressured, if I'm not tested, by some individuals that probably just don't care, how am I gonna know what's really in my soul and in my heart? Am I gonna am I gonna learn the art of how to respond to it or am I gonna let that situation ruin my day or dominate the rest of my day or my mm-hmm. life? Yeah, that's a great way to look at it as a challenge to Becoming a better person, basically, through every experience that is negative. There's yeah. there's always something to learn, even if you suffer in a situation. Mm-hmm. I've seen women suffer in marriages. I've seen men suffer in marriages. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen that in their suffering, they have grown wisdom. They have, they have died to pride. Right. They have, you know, yeah. they have died to selfishness. Mm-hmm because of the negative things that come along the way to shake us up. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I like that. Died to pride. That's great. Yeah. 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 Thank you for listening, and check out Better Broadhead's website at betterbroadhead.org. Thank you for listening to another episode of Clear Thinking, brought to you by Better Broadhead. For information of upcoming events and meetings, please visit our website at betterbroadhead.org and be sure to subscribe to our email list.